Okay, ready to go. Good morning. Good morning. Hope you're all well. Hope you've had a blessed week and weekend. We had some rain last night. I don't know if you noticed. Did you? Did you have? We had a little, and it was um, it was pretty frightening. I've got a tree in the front yard, and uh, it's one of those big gum trees, and it sort of branches off in two. You know. Um, and a couple of years ago, the next-door neighbour sort of made mention that there's a bit of a seam happening in between, and it goes right down to the ground on the two arms. And it was really tight, and we had a guy come out there and have a bit of a look at it. And uh, he goes, no, nah, it should be fine. could last you know, another 40 years. could crack tomorrow. Oh, OK. <laughs> what do you reckon I should do, cut it down? And he goes, well, it's up to you. It's a beautiful tree. I don't want to cut it down. So, um, so I didn't cut it down. A year later... That little seam has opened up that wide. You can put your hand through it. Still haven't cut it down. I've got a couple of heavy-duty straps and actually tied the limbs together. I did, true, true, 100%. But last night, I must admit, I was out the window looking. One of those branches is directly over my bedroom. So it was a bit of a concern. Anyway, that has nothing to do with the message this morning. It wasn't even an introduction, all right? So uh, let's, let's open in a word of prayer and let's get into the study this morning. Father, we thank you for your loving mercy and your grace. We thank you, dear Lord, for the joy of knowing you. And we thank you, dear Lord, most importantly, that you know us. That you have, dear Father, from ages past, dear Lord, already, dear Father, looked at those who you love, dear Father, and drawn us to you. And we praise you for it. We look forward, dear Lord, to your word, and we look forward, dear Father, to an understanding of your word that perhaps, dear Lord, we haven't understood before. I pray, dear Lord, that you would be with me as I preach, but be with those of us that are listening. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and an understanding heart that we might rejoice all the more, dear Father, in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, and what it teaches us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I turn your Bibles to Romans, the book of Romans, we're still going through the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, I don't know how many messages I've actually preached on Romans chapter 8 so far, but I've got three to go, <clears throat> I've got three to go, I, I've got three to go, yeah, so I've got this one, next month, and the 1st of July will be the last one, <clears throat> which we're going to wrap up <clears throat> in, a, in a large way, Romans chapter 8. And it's a beautiful chapter. We're going to be actually reading, we'll read just, just three verses. We're going to be focusing on the central verse, which is verse 29, but we'll start at verse 28 so we can have the context. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are thee called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. This morning is going to be a little bit difficult to to preach in a way that would be filled with stories and wonderful things and all that sort of stuff, that you'd be able to sit there and say, oh, that was a really good message, I really enjoyed that. 
No, this morning is going to be one that's going to need your participation because we're going to be dealing with a couple of very important doctrines and the doctrines of foreknowledge, predestination, what that means and what its purpose is. But it's going to need your mind to be engaged. Okay? There's some logical things that we need to be considering. There's some things that I want to bring out that you would have a really, really good understanding of. We're going to be dealing with other aspects with respect to the sovereignty of God when I get to chapter 9 of Romans. So I'm not going to deal with that part fully here. But I do want to deal with these couple of issues. There's three points to the message, not four, but I'm going to be lucky if I can get through the first two. And the first one is simply that foreknowledge is the purpose of God. Foreknowledge is the purpose of God. The second point is predestined is the appointment of God. Predestined is the appointment of God. The third point, if I have the opportunity to get to it, will be the goal, which is conformed to Christ, the culmination for Christians. Um, I love this part of Scripture, and I love digging into this, because it's something that is so profound, and that it gives us a wonderful joy. So the first point, the foreknowledge, the purpose of God... You'll see it in verse 29. That's where we've got it introduced to us. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Whom he did foreknow. The foreknowledge of God equates to the purpose of God. Now, you and I generally think of foreknowledge as something that you know before, yeah? So we know something before, therefore we have foreknowledge. There's a number of different ways that you can look at that. You can look at that as uh, wisdom. Wisdom is a type of foreknowledge. You know the end of a matter by considering the beginning of a matter. For example, too much alcohol leads to drunkenness. Okay? Too much debt leads to bankruptcy. Okay, that, that's not rocket science, is it? I mean, that's, that's a degree of wisdom and a degree of foreknowledge. It's pretty simple. Um, slothfulness leads to poverty, and students know that if they don't study, they will not get the highest score that they can get, and they could possibly fail. All right, so you've got that knowledge that happens through wisdom. We know the end of a matter by considering the beginning of the matter. We, we also have that in the Bible. I mean, you've got plenty of that in the Bible. And a couple of examples are, um, now pride cometh before a fall. Okay? Um, uh, spare the rod, spoil the child. You've heard some of those. They're shortenings of what the Bible actually says. But you can go through the book of Proverbs and there is an amazing amount of that type of foreknowledge. It's a type of wisdom. Um, you've also got to be a little bit careful on if you're going to be ascribing any foreknowledge to God, you've got to make sure it is God's. We, we went and saw Fiddler on the Roof a few uh, months ago, Maria and I and my daughter, and um, he, Tevya, if anybody knows the character of Tevya, lovely guy, and he always likes to quote the good book. And he says, one of them was, uh, as the good books say, when a poor man eats a chicken, one of them is sick. And another bit of wisdom and foreknowledge was this. He says, and as the good book says, if you spit in the air, it lands in your face. You know? So that's wonderful. And he was actually warned at one time with some foreknowledge from somebody else about money. And they said, money is the world's curse. 
And sometimes we can desire some of those ends. And Tevye says, and may the Lord smite me with it. And may I never recover. <laughs> so you've got to be careful of some of the foreknowledge that it is of God and it is indeed wise. But you can have foreknowledge about knowing, actually knowing something before everybody else does. Um, you could know who the winner of My Kitchen Rules was if you happen to be the cameraman. Okay, so you'll know that before anybody else does. Okay, you might know who the winner of the Brownlow is because you're the president of the AFL. Again, you've got a certain foreknowledge. You know something is true before it happens. But when we're looking at the scripture, the foreknowledge of God is so much more than that. Yes, we know that he is wise. God is the very personification of wisdom. All right? And we know that he knows things ahead of time because God knows the end from the beginning. So we recognize that. But when it comes to foreknowledge, the foreknowledge described in Scripture is actually that which he has purposed before. It's that which he has already determined within his heart will occur. That's what we see in Scripture. So we're going to go through just a couple of Scripture proofs, just in the text that we're in. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Note, note what the subject is. Okay, The subject is the people. It's about the people. It says, for whom he did foreknow. It's not the means. It's not, the, it's, not, it's not anything else. It's the people for whom he did foreknow. He also did predestinate. So the subject is the people. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, please. 1 Peter chapter 1. The reason why I want to bring some of these out is because even amongst fundamental Baptist churches, you're going to find um, a little bit of a variety on how this is taught. Many of which I've seen... Um, believe that predestination and foreknowledge is known before and the predestination refers to the means. But they really have to do some jumbling up with the scriptures to teach that. But the reason why they teach it is really important and we'll touch on that in a minute because there's a, there's a, uh, there's a sincere reason why they want to avoid um, teaching what, what I see the Bible showing here. First Peter chapter 1. We'll look at um, verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Note again that the elect refers to who? It refers to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. That's who the elect are. And again, it's persons that's referred to in the passage. So we see that divine election, that is God's sovereign choice, was made in accordance with the foreknowledge of God. So the two were working in together, but one naturally follows the other. The election came after the foreknowledge of God. So the election follows foreknowledge. Um, the impression in the passage is that election follows immediately after that which has already been determined as the purpose of God. 
So there's, there's no hint in this passage that God elects us because he, he knew us before, that he foreknew us, um, that, that we would choose to be saved, for example. Okay? There's no hint of that in there. It's like, um, can you imagine a business uh, choosing new employees because they foreknew that the applicants wanted the job? Can, can we choose employees based on that? No. No, we can't choose employees based on that. Can we elect or choose a government because we foreknew that they had chosen to govern? It's exactly the same with respect to God. God can't choose simply because he foreknew that we would choose salvation. Okay? Salvation is the work of God and the work of God alone. Does it have consequences? Yep, might have some consequences. Does it have consequences that seem to logically follow but could be an error? Yes, too. Yes to that, too. And I'll touch on that in a minute as well. So these are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The context here is the same as our passage. It relates first to the persons, that is, the strangers that are scattered. And second, it indicates the purpose or the goal. Like, we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The goal here is unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Uh, Turn back to Romans, Romans chapter 11. The only reason I'm thinking that I might not be able to finish this is not because I, I, the, the sermon's not short enough, it's because I need to go slow enough to try and get this, um, get this understood. So we still might be able to finish. Romans chapter 11, only going for through verses 1 to 6, and I'll just, um, I'll just pause in between a couple of verses at a time here so we can get a, a, bit, of a, a bit of an understanding here also. Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. So next, he's going to explain now what he's, what he's just said. Okay? So now he's going to explain and give a, a bit of an explanation on that, on that portion that he's, just, uh, that he's just given. He says, What ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel? saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Now he gives you the conclusion. Even so then, at this present time, at which present time? At the time of Paul. When was Paul? He was after Christ. Okay, Jesus had already died and already risen from the dead. He was already rejected by the people of Israel, by the nation of Israel. They had already rejected him. Okay, This is now Paul, as one born out of due time, the Bible says. He says, even so, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now he gives a further clarification in verse 6. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. And if it be of works then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. The purpose of the foreknowledge, the purpose of being predestined or the purpose of election is that the work is of God and that the work is by grace. And it's not of us, it's of Him. It's all of Him. It's all about Him. We like to always think it's all about us, but it's not. It's about Him. It sort of is about us, and we'll talk about that in a second as well. So first he notes that God has not cast away His people who He foreknew. Now, what does he mean here by this foreknowledge? 
He goes on to explain it that even Elijah himself thinks that he is the last of all the prophets. And God tells him that he has reserved to himself 7,000 men. This is at the time of the Old Testament. So he concludes, even at this present time, that's the time when Paul was around, even at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. A remnant of who? Remnant of Israel. Speaking about Israel, hath God cast away his people? No, he has not cast them away. But he's foreknown them. He's already purposed something for them. He's determined their outcome. He has determined their outcome. Israel is foreknown of God. Last passage we'll turn to for this point is in Acts chapter 2. So go back, back a book to the book of Acts chapter 2. Given to us by Dr. Luke. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. This one is a, this is a fascinating one because it actually gives us a little bit of an explanation on how this foreknowledge works, this predestination works, and the election works. Verse 22, he says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. This is Peter speaking. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. What do we have as the link here? We have that, they, that, he, they, that Christ was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. The determinate counsel of foreknowledge of God. Have a look at that. First you see that something very unique has happened here where there has been an appointed time. There has been a time here where Jesus was to be taken. And we know that because in the Bible, in the New Testament, you see many times Jesus had said, he, the Bible says that he escaped among them because Jesus said his time was not ready. Right? How many times did they want to make him a king? But it was not the appointed time. Okay? There was a time that was determined. It was predetermined by the foreknowledge of God. Because God knew before? No, because he had purposed already within his heart that which was to happen. But two things are incredible in this, in this verse, in these two verses. The first one was that it's God who had the determinate counsel and foreknowledge. God who had the determinate counsel and foreknowledge for Christ to be taken at the appointed time. Okay? Yet, it's they, the men of Israel, who had taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain him. Well, that's interesting. How does that work? If God has already determined that Christ should be taken and he has foreknown that he would be slain and put on a tree then why is the blame here to them, men of Israel, who had taken and by wicked hands had crucified and slain? And that's the rub, guys. That's the point of this. The point is that it is 100% the sovereignty of God. 100%. And the Bible also teaches that man is 100% accountable. Okay? It's something that we find incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to comprehend this side of eternity. But you can't take away from what's in front of us. 
You can't take away. And this is just one bit. And, I'm, and I'll, I'll be bringing this out a lot clearer once we get to Romans chapter 9. Because if you can get this point now, if you can understand now that we have a God who is 100% sovereign, 100% involved in our salvation, because no man can come to Christ lest the Father draw him, and yet all who will may enter, whosoever will may come to Christ, because it's their choice, then you have an understanding of what the Bible teaches. Will you be able to reconcile it? No. Can't reconcile it. Will you know what the Bible teaches? Yes, you will know what the Bible teaches. Look, I'm not one of those that believe that the Bible is obscure. Okay, I believe that we can know everything that God teaches in His Word. You have His very Word. You can know everything God is teaching. The question is whether you're going to believe it or not. Okay, Will you understand it? Possibly not. Does that mean that there is no... Um, there's no argument between Christians. There's, no, there, there's nothing there that's, that's a little bit, uh, little bit difficult that we can argue about. No. We'll have different disputes about it. But that doesn't mean that God is vague. You remember, God gave us the word of God that we might know him. That we might know the way of salvation. The Bible also says that we're going to be held accountable to every word. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word has one that judges him. The word that I've spoken, the same shall judge him in that day. Guys, if God's going to judge by his word, it stands to reason he's given it to us that we may know it. Okay? So please, if you're going to go into reading the Bible, believing that God is vague, guess what? You're not going to read the Bible. You just won't. But if you believe that God actually has something to tell you and that you need to study to shew thyself a man approved unto God, then you will believe and you will read his word. So it's clear what he's teaching here. But it's also something for our comfort. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. The foreknowledge of God relates to that which he has promised before the world began in eternity past. In eternity past, he knew your name. In eternity past, he knew your name. In eternity past, the creator of the universe already had you in his mind. And you were specific and a particular person. And he had in his sights you to save. You, you, individually you. I could call out your names. That's exactly how God wanted to save you. Individually you. You were already in his mind and in his sights before the foundations of the earth was laid. In eternity past. And that's the reason why it gives you comfort, you see. Because if it's the foreknowledge of God, and He can get so intimate with you even before you were, then you can also know that all things can work together for good. You see, it's not just you He knows. He knows everything about you. He knows all that will happen. He knows all that will occur within your life. But he has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. That's why the very verse before says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Makes sense. 
They can't work together for good if we're not confident that the God of the universe was the one who actually knows it aforetime, determined things aforetime, purposed things aforetime. And he purposed your salvation as well as your conformity to Christ. Hope that wasn't too deep and heavy. Because we're going to get a little deeper, okay? (laughs) Point is, God has not left you to chance. He hasn't left you to chance. He's purposed, he's determined, and that's where we have it. He's purposed here within his heart. The foreknowledge of God is that which he has purposed and determined within his heart. Now, next point. Predestined, the appointment of God. The appointment of God. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine. Sorry, I'm back at Romans chapter 8. Just a... For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Predestinate. Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Again, this is going back to and relating to people. It's not the means. The goal it speaks about at the end, but it still refers to the people. For God to foreknow, we understood to be that which he has purposed in his heart and determined to do beforehand. But for God to predestine means that he has appointed. To give you a really simplistic explanation of it, you might purpose to do something. But that purpose won't be appointed until you write it in your diary. Okay? You can't write it in your diary before you've already made the decision that you're going to do something. I've got a to-do list. <clears throat> Unfortunately, I rewrite that to-do list every day. <laughs> it seems I don't get through the to-do list. But I purpose to do something. All right? And I write it down. Okay? You can't make an appointment to see a doctor unless you've already determined to see a doctor. Yeah? Make sense? So the purpose of God is that which is determined within the heart. The purpose is determined, is the term, determination of the heart. The appointment is the scheduled intent. Got it? The appointment is the scheduled intent. We have both of those here working together. Naturally, the one follows the other. Okay? And that's what we have when it comes to this predestination that we speak about. It's the purposed intent. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, that is Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Does the Bible actually teach that those who are Christ are in fact foreknown, predestined, called? You know these three words, foreknown, predestined, called? To most people, it sends a shiver up their spine. You know, they don't like those words. You know, so they often try and mix things about. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Because we need to be able to bring this out in, an, in a way that you will see this is just simply what the Bible's saying. Ephesians chapter 1. read a few verses here, but I want, you to, I, want you to, I want you to see what it says. Because, I mean, this is probably the clearest, one of the most clearest points in Scripture. And it's a beautiful passage of the, of the Bible. It's one of those that every time I read it, I get a little bit blown away. 
Ephesians chapter 1. We'll start at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father... Sorry, what I want you to focus on as well is who the focal point is. Okay? Who the focal point is in this entire passage. All right? Um, And I don't want to... The the next point, I'm not going to emphasise too much. This first point I will a little bit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So note primarily that we are chosen and predestined. That's what it says here, that he hath chosen us in him. Having predestinated us. It's not the means, it's the people. The chosen and the predestination is not the means, but the people. I need to continually re-emphasise that, because that is the context. Because what you're going to find in many other different teachings is that they are referring to the means, not the people. That Jesus was the means by which we are, that he was predestined, not us. That's not what the text says. Okay? The purpose is, and this is the point, the purpose is, his. It's his pleasure. It's his will. It's not your will nor mine. It's his. It's all about him. Have a look at verse 6. Verse 6. There's one person that's, been, uh, that's coming out here, and I won't emphasise it. I want you to see it for yourselves. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. Anybody got a clue who that might be? Who, who is that? Yeah, that's, that's, that's the Lord. His grace. He hath his blood, according to his grace. He hath his will, according to his good pleasure. He hath purposed in himself. It ain't about you. It's about him. It's what God has done and he has the right to do so. Now the purpose in verse 10, have a look. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Verses 11 and 12. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his good pleasure, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. I don't know. Is that vague? I think it's pretty clear. I think it's pretty clear. Turn the Bible to Acts. Going back to Luke's book, Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We'll just bring this out a little bit more. The way you can see that it's God's doing everything he can to try and nail this in Scripture that you might understand and see. Acts chapter 13. We'll look at the, towards the end of that chapter, verse 48. That's where we're going to be going. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And it says there, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, 
and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Ordained. What does it mean to be ordained? Well, in the Oxford English Dictionary, it simply means to put in order, to arrange, to make ready, to prepare. That is, to ordain. Someone has already ordained them to eternal life. He has already put in order, he has already arranged, he's already made ready, he's already prepared them to eternal life. They are ordained to eternal life. When did he do this? Well, when he foreknew them. When he foreknew them. You can go back and you can see that in Numbers 28 and 1 Kings chapter 12 and 2 Kings chapter 23. In John chapter 15, Jesus actually said, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you, that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. In Ephesians chapter 2.10, we'd already had... Uh, we, well, chapter two, well, this is another portion in the Bible, chapter 2 of Ephesians. He said, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in, G, in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That's why in the book of Acts there it says, And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. It's interesting in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, in verse 47, there's an interesting phrase there. And it says, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. This is incredible. Whose work is it? When you're sharing the gospel with someone, it's not you. It's not about you. It's not about how well you share the gospel. It's not about how well you share the gospel. You're just commanded to do so. And you're commanded to do so with love. The Bible says that if they reject you, it's because they've rejected him, not you. I remember when I first started sharing the gospel with people, I I, I got pretty passionate, you know? (laughs) I did, I did, you know, it was like they were rejecting me, you know, it's like, what do you mean you don't believe? What are you talking about? I just told you, just showed you, can't you see, you're blind, you know, where was the love? The love was here, the love was here, who was hurt? I was hurt. Who was offended? I was offended. Who was rejected? God was rejected, not me, okay, it's God's work, it's his work, it's all his work. Your charge is to love. Your charge is to bless, to forgive, and to share that gospel of grace. Your charge is the good news. Okay? That's our charge. We've got in Acts chapter 18 another interesting passage. Let me just read it for you. This is where Paul has gone into Corinth, the city of Corinth. And he's getting frustrated here because the Jews there aren't listening to his message. So he, he, he shakes himself and he washes his hands and he says, I've had enough of you, you know, I'm out of here. And then Jesus says to him, he says, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Who had much people in that city? Jesus had much people in that city. Paul's people? Jesus' people. Did they know Christ at the time? No. Paul was there to preach the gospel to them. Jesus had much people in that city. An interesting turn of events actually happens a few chapters later, in chapter 22, because now he's in Jerusalem. 
And Jesus says, make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. Whose responsibility was it? It was their responsibility. It's grouse, isn't it? It's, it's, I love how all this comes together, you know. All right, last portion I want you to turn to. Turn to Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, chapter 2. So in Romans, so you're moving forward past Corinthians, you get to all the T's. First Thessalonians, second. Second Thessalonians, chapter 2. We're going to be looking at just two verses there, 13 and 14. And again, just to bring out the simplicity of this, of this beautiful doctrine. He says there, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in, of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been chosen unto salvation. How is the call made? The call is made through the gospel. We don't know who's going to respond and who's not going to respond. We share the gospel. That's the call. Remember, the Bible says many are called, but few are chosen. Yet, yet, we also have that beautiful portion in the scripture where Jesus says and commands, go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Who does the call go out to? It goes out to all people. How do we do it? We compel. We compel them to come in. Funny thing is, you're not going to know you're chosen until you're saved. But then again, all are chosen, but not all are saved. It's, a, it's, it's such an exciting portion of Scripture that, again, we can't understand it this side of eternity. Jesus made clear that no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Now, an error. Now, I'm not going to be responsible unless I actually tell you about the potential error for this. Many years ago, I was actually speaking to a gentleman. Now, we know in Scripture, we know what it says, okay? We know that the Bible says that God is completely sovereign in our salvation. He is the one that does the work. It's God that ordains. It's God that calls. It's God that elects. It's God that predestines. We know that. We see that in the text. We also see something else in the text, and that is that man is to obey the gospel. It's a commandment. We are commanded to obey. If we didn't have the free will to obey, well... What are we? Puppets on a string. I had a gentleman who sort of understood part of the doctrine. He understood and he was more involved in the Calvinistic line of thought where um, he held to this idea of irresistible grace, believing that grace can be, uh, cannot be resisted. Okay. The problem with that is that we see evidence right through Scripture that grace can be. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a command to believe the gospel. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a need to compel. So he believed, and I asked him about his family and all that, and he basically said, yeah, yeah, no, my kids don't know the Lord, but, you know, if, if they're elected, they'll, 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 they'll come. I said, what do you mean if they're elected? Do you share the gospel with them? He goes, no, no, if they're elected, they'll... Now, if they're one of the elect, then they'll come. If they're not, well, then they're not. And I'm like, ah. Oh. There's a, there's a tool that Satan uses, and it's a wonderful tool. 
It's anything that dissuades you from the gospel. Anything that prevents you from sharing the gospel with anybody, any idea, any belief system that prevents you from sharing the gospel is not God's tool. It's the devil's tool. You've got to be careful about extrapolating ideas that are not found in Scripture. Okay, you've got to be careful. You need to take the whole counsel of God together, not select portions. But this idea of God being 100% sovereign and man being 100% accountable is so often confused because we don't accept, we always accept one before the other. Our laziness accepts God being 100% sovereign, okay? Our love for self and pride believes that we are 100% involved, okay? But it's, and it's not a balance between the two, it's both, okay? It's not either one or the other or one lifted up above the other, it's both. Both are taught in Scripture. In chapter 9 of Romans, we'll bring that out a little bit more. God foreknowing, predestining, calling, choosing, electing does not take away from the command to all people to repent and believe the gospel. Mark chapter 1 verse 15. Why issue a command when there is no resistance to grace? There's another error called double predestination. We're not going to be talking about that here. We'll talk about that next time. But that's another one. Because again, what we're doing is extrapolating an idea that holds that if some are predestined to heaven, therefore others are predestined to hell. I don't know how that works. It's a logical idea. It makes sense logically, doesn't it? Okay, because the idea is logical, all right? It means that some are predestined to heaven and others are predestined to hell. And, you know, when I was studying all of this, I remembered thinking, well, if that's true, then it's true. You know what I mean? I'm not going to argue with it. If that's what the Bible teaches, then that's, that's the case. And my desire was to know what the truth of it was. But every time I read through Scripture, I'm reading all these things. I'm reading Nebuchadnezzar, who was chosen as a servant of God to actually do his will, and then I'm reading that he's actually been condemned by God for doing that which God had already determined that he was going to do. You see the portion of David actually commanded by Satan to go out and number the people. God in one passage actually says that God would actually, was the one that filled him with the idea. In another passage it was Satan. And then he actually gets punished for actually doing that which somehow he was compelled to do. Do you understand? There's some elements in the Bible that doesn't make any sense unless you have to accept both of them together. Okay? Nineveh was actually spared from the wrath of God. Okay? From the preaching of Jonah. But what happened? Even before that time, God had already determined that Nineveh would be destroyed. Do you see what I mean? You've got to be very, very careful. When it comes to the sovereignty of God, you have to accept. God is 100% sovereign. Man is 100% accountable. And this is what we have taught in Scripture. There is none that are predestined to hell. We do have some interesting passages. And they are predestined to hell. Huh. I don't mean to confuse you here, but remember what I said. God is 100% sovereign. Man is 100% accountable. Okay, There are some that are fitted to destruction. We'll bring that out again in chapter 9. And it doesn't mean anything other than what it says. I'm not saying that it does. What I'm saying is you have to accept both as true. Okay? We are commanded to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The door, whosoever will, may enter. Okay, we will have time to finish the message. Praise the Lord. The third point. So we've got, the, we've got that. So the foreknowledge of God 
is the purpose of God. Okay? It's the purpose of God. Predestined is the appointment of God. All right? We've got those two. Conformed to Christ, the culmination for, script, for Christians. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. I am going to be bringing this out more the next time because it's just such an incredible passage just on its own. Um, it's our highest end. I, I actually put down that it's the culmination for Christians and I use that word, I use that word on purpose. The, 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 the dictionary actually resp- explains culmination as the, one of the points was the attainment by a heavenly body of its greatest altitude, the act of reaching the meridian. Okay, the second point that it says defining culmination is the attainment of the highest point or state of being at the height, that in which anything culminates, the crown or consummation. Guess what it is for Christians? It's to be in the image of Christ. We are being conformed to the image of Christ. We're not being conformed to this world. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. We are being shaped, pressed, moulded encouraged into the image of Christ. If you know Christ, that is the active work that is happening within your life now. And it will culminate when we are with the Lord. Why? Because we will see Him as He is. We will see Him as He is. Will we be perfect this side of eternity? There's nothing in the Scripture that gives us any indication that that's the case. But we will be as Christ is when we are with Him. Remember, Christ is to be the firstborn among many brethren. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Because you need to understand again that the focus is on Christ. It's on God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our passage that we were looking at, it says that he also did predestinate him to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might, that is Christ, remember that's a pronoun, it refers to the previous noun, the Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 18 brings that out a little bit more. And it says, it says this is another, another, another book of Paul's. Paul wrote 13 of these epistles that we know of at the very least, and this is one of them. It says there in verse, um, actually we're taking from verse 17, sorry, just two verses. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. The brethren of the Lord will be like him in the end. We're told in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, but we shall see him as he is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you've got that other wonderful little passage, and it says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, hmm, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, as by the Spirit of the Lord. This is our hope, but it's also our test. It's our hope and our test. It's certain that those who are foreknown are also called. Those who are predestined are also conformed, being changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And it's certain in the text, therefore, that there must be a change in our lives. 
there must be a change in our lives. Now this is both my hope and my test. See, my hope is to be like Christ. This is my hope. My test is yesterday. My test is yesterday. Because if I am today the same as I was yesterday, then there's something inhibiting me to be more like Christ. So I don't want Eddie tomorrow. I don't want Eddie tomorrow. I don't want to be anything like Eddie tomorrow. I want to be more like Christ. I can't wait until there's no more Eddie and there's all Christ. You know? And yet the Bible actually says that I am dead. I am dead in Christ. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't want to be Eddie anymore. You know? And I know none of you want to be the If you are Christ's, none of you want to be you tomorrow. That's 100% true. 100% true. And that's the Lord doing the work within your life. Next time I'm going to talk about how he does it. But I just want to identify a few things at the moment. Okay? There are today nominal Christians. And there are many. Many. There are many Christians who go to church who call themselves Christians, but are none of his. There are many people who go to church believing themselves to be okay with Christ, but he's not known of them. And the Bible says many, you know, uh, there's going to come a time there where this multitude of nominal Christians, Christians in name only, are going to knock and demand that the Lord open to us. When the door is shut and he will say, I know you not. I know you not. And as a church, this is our grief and our burden. As parents, this is our ministry. And as friends, this is our charge before God to exhort those who profess Christ to make their calling and election sure. This is our charge. I can't understate how important this is for a church to be exhorting one another to grow in Christ. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that we know the heart. We don't know the heart. We don't know whether a person is generally born again or not born again. We, we, we understand that. Only the spirit of a man knows the spirit of a man that is within him. But brethren, if the flower doesn't bud to reveal its beauty... It's going to be treated as grass. Okay? There needs to be an opening of the Spirit of God within your life. There has to be a change. Now the Bible gives us that picture of that, of that farmer who, who sees the tree that doesn't bear any fruit. But the farmer doesn't dig it up. You're not to dig up anybody that you don't know their heart. But what are you to do? You're to exhort. You are to dig about it. You are to fertilise it. You are to water it. You're to do what you can in loving nurture and care. God will do the pruning. That's not your job. That's his. We are to treat. We are to exhort. We are to encourage. We are to love. Okay? And we are to compel them to know whether they know Christ. That they may grow. The evidence of change. We're going to look at one last segment before we close. And it's the evidence of change. One, and I'm only going to deal with one. I just want to deal with one. 
Okay, there's many, but I just want to deal with one. Turn to Colossians. If you're in Colossians already, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. It says there, forbearing, so Colossians chapter 3 verse 13 says, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. One of the key changes in our lives, one of the clearest examples of being conformed to Christ is our willingness to forgive others as he forgave us. There's, there's nothing. There's nothing that demonstrates the confirmation to Christ more than this. Nothing does. Why? Because it's the outward manifestation of selfless love. That's what it is. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is the outward manifestation of selfless love. The very love that Jesus Christ had for us in being willing to sacrifice himself in order to forgive us is our example. As Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Brethren, forgiveness costs us nothing other than pride. Cost him his life. Cost him his life. Jesus gave his life in order to forgive you. That's, that's love. That's love. A few weeks ago, I was speaking to a lady who, um, who spoke in all ways very pious. She was very pious. She spoke about God and she spoke about how we should be living for God and um, she spoke about conviction. She spoke as a Christian. She spoke as one who knew Christ. Her actions completely opposed because she hates her brother but hates her brother. And I'm not talking a brother in the Lord. If she's a Christian, he's also a Christian. I know he's a Christian. I don't know her state. But it's also her family brother. Right? She hates him. A lack of forgiveness, a complete lack of love. If we're commanded by the Lord to love our enemies, and here we have an example of one who hates her loved one, is there any evidence that she is conforming to Christ? There's no evidence there. If the forgiveness of Christ and the love of God is not manifest in her, what does it say about her love for God? I'm not making this up. This is something that I pretend to understand. The Bible gives me the example. In 1 John chapter 4, it tells us if we love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother... He is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. The greatest picture of a person being conformed to Christ is the love that we have for everyone, for all the people that are around us. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, 
and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We need to put pride aside. That has to be a picture of Christ. Humility is the picture of Christ. You can't forgive when you're filled with pride. You can't love when you're filled with self. It doesn't work. Couldn't have worked for Christ. He's the very picture of love. He humbled himself. This is God, guys. You know, you think you're something and you can't humble yourself. This is God humbling himself as a man to die for you, to forgive you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The more we are conformed to Christ, the more our burden is for the souls of others. The more our burden is for the souls of others. The pain they may cause you, the hurt they may afflict upon you, creates in you a grief and a burden for their souls more than a hatred of their behaviour. Guys and girls, this is... um, I don't know if you're able to do that. When someone does things against you, what's your response? Is your response... I hate what they did, I don't like what they did, why are they doing that, they're all demented, all this bickering and carrying on. Or is there a grieve in your heart because of where they're at with God? You see, if they're lost and you're saved, what have you got to be upset about? Your heart should be burdened for theirs. Your heart should be burdened that they would know Christ. And if they know Christ but they're not growing in Christ... Again, your heart should be burdened for them and you should love them and be willing to forgive. That's a picture of conforming to Christ. A beautiful picture of it. Okay? Again, it's our test and our hope. Examine yourselves. Number one, whether you be in the faith. Okay? Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Vitally important. If you don't have that characteristic, two things. Either you don't know Christ, you don't know Christ, or you're not growing. Okay, and to grow, three things, how we are changed, the word of God, prayer, obedience. We'll talk about that next time. It's always the same old formula, read, pray, obey. Doesn't change, doesn't change. Let's pray. Oh Lord of my God, I praise you for this time. I praise you for the glorious word, the scriptures, that which we can know, that which we can understand, that which we can believe. Father, there's so many things that we don't understand. But yes, yet, dear Lord, we desire to believe them. And I pray, dear Father, that as those who know you desire to be conformed to you, let us, dear Father, indeed, read, pray, obey. Let's bless you, dear Father, in trusting you that you will complete that perfect work within our lives. And those, dear Lord, who do not know you, I pray that they would see the forgiveness and the love of Christ who humbled himself, became a servant even unto death, that he had them within their eyes, within his eyes, from eternity past, that their name is known by him, and that they are called even now. I ask, dear Lord, that you would convict their heart and that you would bring them to the foot of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.